Welcome back to the Clerkship Success Series, part of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast, where we talk about clinical approaches to common neurologic complaints. Today, we'll be talking about involuntary movements, and Charlie and I are very excited to be speaking with Dr. Sarah Schaefer. She's a specialist in movement disorders at the Yale School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Schaefer. Thanks for having me. Charlie, why don't you dive right into the learning objectives for today? All right, Sonia. So learning objectives for today, first, we want to discuss the roles of the basal ganglia and extrapyramidal tracts in movement. And then we'll talk about different types of involuntary movement complaints. We'll be focusing on this section a lot on tremors, how to describe different types of tremors. And lastly, our third learning objective is to describe some of the conditions that are associated with each involuntary movement as its predominant symptom. So as usual, we'll start with just a general framework for how to think about movement disorders and involuntary movements. Dr. Schaefer, do you have a framework that you use for for thinking about these types of complaints? Yeah, I do. I have several categories of descriptors that I like to use, uh, starting with hyperkinetic and hypokinetic. So just back to basics, you know, hyperkinetic is too much movement, hypokinetic is too little movement. And we'll talk about examples of those, I'm sure. Then I like to see whether the movement is rhythmic or if it's arrhythmic, rhythmic like the beat of a drum, uh, arrhythmic meaning not like that. Um, The level of voluntariness, which really goes more to the history, to taking a good history from the patient, whether they have any control over the movements at all. And then I get into some other descriptors such as, uh, are the movements stereotyped or not? Do they follow this kind of predictable pattern or are they completely non-stereotyped? And what do they look like? Are they jerky? Are they oscillatory looking like a sinusoidal wave? Are they flowing? And any other descriptors that you might use to further characterize the movements. I find it helpful to start with these descriptors instead of jumping straight to a phenomenological diagnosis. So phenomenology is tremor, myoclonus, chorea, hemiblismus. Those are all phenomenologies. And I find that trainees, when they're just starting out, they jump to phenomenologies and skip the descriptors, and then they may be incorrectly characterizing the movements. Excellent. So it sounds like first describing the movements in terms of the big divisions like hyperkinetic, hypokinetic, rhythmic, arrhythmic, involuntary, uh, different levels of voluntariness and other descriptors. And then we go into the phenomenology of these movements. So before we talk about the movements themselves and the descriptors, let's review some of the anatomy. So in our weakness episode, which was our last episode, we discussed the corticospinal tract, which is involved in voluntary movements. So the modulation of this pathway, this corticospinal tract, however, occurs in the basal ganglia. So Dr. Schaefer, could you tell us more about the basal ganglia circuitry? Sure. So I just want to, in terms of the language, talk about pyramidal versus extrapyramidal. So the corticospinal tract is the pyramidal pathway, meaning it goes through the pyramids in the medulla, um, the pyramids where the corticospinal pathway goes down. And extrapyramidal is all of the motor circuitry outside of the pyramidal pathway, the pyramids, the corticospinal tract. It took me an embarrassing long time to realize linguistically why it was called extrapyramidal, but that's why it is. So the extrapyramidal, the major part is 
through the basal ganglia circuitry, you know, we all learn about the direct and indirect pathways. So the basal ganglia circuitry, which is modulated by a lot of different things. It's modulated by um, the cerebellar inputs, it mo it's modulated by visual inputs, by aud uh, auditory vestibular inputs, by proprioceptive inputs, all going through these basal ganglia pathways and through the thalamus and then ending up with several extrapyramidal tracts that go out into the body to help you maintain balance and modulate your movements. So the, you know, the direct pathway is the excitatory pathway, the indirect pathway is the inhibitory pathway. Both pathways enter the basal ganglium, basal ganglia through the striatum, which is the caudate plus putamen, and both pathways exit the basal ganglia through the thalamus with inputs to the cortex. And what they do within the basal ganglia in terms of which nuclei are involved and whether those nuclei are excitatory or inhibitory is uh, dictates whether the ultimate output from the thalamus is inhibitory or excitatory. I'm not going to belabor the entire indirect and direct pathways. You can look those up, but uh, it's, it is good to know that the input is through the striatum, the output is through the thalamus. The in, uh, and then there's also input through uh, dopaminergic input through the substantia nigra pars compacta and D1 receptors are related to the direct pathway, D2 receptors are related to the indirect pathway. And the net, uh, the net effect of dopamine with both systems is to enhance movement. And so when you lack dopamine, you have a paucity of movement. Great. For students who are listening, direct pathway is excitatory, indirect is inhibitory for movement, and both pathways receive input from the striatum and output to the thalamus. Both are also modulated by the substantia nigra pars compacta, which acts on dopamine receptors. Let's move on to the neurologic exam. This is a lot of where you'll be able to see the movements that are that the, the patient is coming in with uh, and will really be able to start to characterize a lot of the big categories of descriptors that you were talking about earlier. But generally, what aspects of the neurologic exam are important for a patient with involuntary movements? So I have to say that the movement exam is one of the major ones where just walking into the room and looking at the patient is so unbelievably important. I can't tell you how much information I get from asking the patient to come from the waiting room into the exam room, how they stand, how they're moving their arms, whether they can look at me directly, how difficult is it to make those saccades, how difficult is it to stand, to walk, to sit back down again, to turn, to go through doorways, all of those things. I'm not actually performing a neurological exam on them, but I am. And the entire time that I'm doing a history on these patients, I'm watching their movements. I'm watching when they come out, when they go away, what their speech is like, what their thought process is like before I even get down to a formal neurological exam. It's so unbelievably important to just be observant during the entire encounter in these patients. In terms of formally assessing them neurologically, cognition is important to assess. And sometimes you don't 
like I said, need to do a lot of formal testing to understand that there's something a little bit um, difficult for them. They often have word, word finding difficulty, language dysfunction, short-term memory loss, those types of things are good to pick up on. So you can do the, the mental status exam, or even I do a MOCA, um, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment exam in a lot of my patients. Eye movements are very important in terms of the quickness of the, their saccades, whether they reach the target appropriately or overshoot or undershoot and then correct, and whether they're, they're able to track even your finger on uh, normal smooth pursuit if it's, if it's smooth or saccadic eye movements, speech. So a lot of my patients who have Parkinsonian syndromes have hypophonia, they have hoarseness, uh, there are a lot of movement patients who have dysarthria, so really assessing speech and figuring out where any speech dysfunction may come from by having them do prolonged phonation like ah, like that, or uh, trying to figure out where the dysarthria is coming from by doing pa, 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 la, 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 ka, ka, ka. So the pa is facial, you need your lips to do that, your perioral muscles, la is lingual, you need your tongue to do that, ka is guttural, you need your palate to work properly to make a ka sound. And so really teasing that out can be very useful. And then moving on to the actual movement disorders exam, we assess for tremor by looking at rest and distracting the patient, giving them a big cognitive load so that that rest tremor comes out if it's there, having them put their hands in different positions, doing finger to nose, putting their hands straight out, writing, drawing spirals on a piece of paper to see if the tremor is coming out, and then having them do lots of repetitive movements such as tapping their fingers to see if there's bradykinesia. And I'm sure we'll talk in more detail about that later. Testing their tone, moving their arms and legs around, all of those very important. And we always do a normal neurological exam on these patients, especially the first time as well, just to make sure that there is an actual weakness that's affecting things, sensory loss that's affecting things. You know, all of the whole neurological exam is important, but but the, I'm highlighting the most important things. And then the last really important thing is gait. So walking the patient, having them walk out of the room all the way down the hallway and back so you can really see how their stride length is, whether their foot is turning a funny way, if their arms are swinging properly, if a tremor comes out, if their base is wide or narrow, how their turning is. Do they stutter step when they turn or festinate or freeze? Um, and do, do they have balance issues? And then we do a pull test on most of our patients where we stand behind them and try to pull them over. Um, and it's good to do that standing in front of a wall so that if they do fall on you, you don't fall on the floor with the patient. That would be extremely embarrassing. So <laughs> anyway, all of this stuff is really important when assessing a patient. And, and uh, movement disorders is one of those cool things where you have to think on your feet because patients will come in and say, I have this weird movement when this happens. So you say, okay, get your mascara out of your bag. We're going to try to put on mascara right now. And so I can see your tremor. Let's pour from a cup or let me get you a drink of water to see how, when it comes out and trying to do different things to 
see what makes the movements better or worse for each individual patient tailored to them. Perfect. So just to recap, you know, observation is really the, the critical component. Um, and that's not only during the exam, but just the entire time when you're talking to the patient, uh, even from the moment you first step into the room. Um, but other features that are important too are thinking about their, their mental status. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about some disease entities that can impact mental status. And so that can help point you in a direction looking at ocular movements, gaze, visual tracking, and saccades, uh, thinking about speech, phonation, and the different muscles involved, and then really diving into the movement exam and, and looking for uh, characterizing the movements and, the, and things like tremor, including with distraction, repetitive movements, muscle tone, and then finally gait and balance. And that comes with all the different features of gait, such as stance and the width of the base, the arm swing, and, and turning. Excellent. And... Uh... Thinking on your feet, that's a very nice joke in this segment. <laughs> I think that the previous part of our episode has been kind of the most important part about how to approach these kinds of disorders and these um, complaints. So the next half of our episode is going to be focused on some specific syndromes within the move category of movement disorders. And we've structured our discussion according to phenomenology. So we'll be going through syndromes that has tremor, chorea, myoclonus, dystonia, and tics as their predominant uh, complaint or feature. So for each one of these categories, these phenomenologies, uh, Dr. Schaefer, if you could kind of explain what the phenomenology is like, the descriptors that you use to describe it, and also we'll go through some particular syndromes and what it entails. Our first one is tremor. Dr. Schaefer, how do you define a tremor and how do you describe it? I describe tremor as a obviously a hyperkinetic movement disorder that is rhythmic and oscillatory. And by oscillatory, I mean that there's alternating agonist and antagonist muscle activity. And I have to say, starting with this is very key because as a movement disorders neurologist, I get many, many referrals for tremor in quotes that ends up not being tremor and it's not rhythmic. It's not oscillatory. Maybe it's multifocal myoclonus. We'll go through that. Um, but, but bringing it down to the basics, rhythmic oscillatory hyperkinetic movement and tremor is a big category. There are a lot of things that can cause tremor. So starting with a basic way to break it down, in terms of when it happens is a really good first step. Does it happen at rest? Does it happen with action? That's a great first, first uh, differentiating feature. Rest tremor is associated with Parkinson's disease and other Parkinsonian syndromes. Action tremors are associated with essential tremor, enhanced physiological tremor, medication-induced tremors. There are lots of different things that can cause action tremors. And action tremors can further be categorized according to during which types of action the tremor comes out. So is it postural? Is it there when the patient just holds their hands in front of them still without moving? Then that's postural tremor. Is it kinetic? So that's with an activity such as writing, drinking from a cup. Is it intention tremor? So does it worsen as they approach a target, for instance, with finger, nose, finger maneuvers? 
or is it isometric? And so that means it, it, it's kind of like a, a hybrid between kinetic and postural. It means that they're activating those muscles in a, in a stable way. So pushing against a wall, for example, or holding a bag of groceries or um, making a fist, those are activating those muscles in a major way, but without actually moving the limb, that's an isometric tremor. And then as with anything, it's important to figure out what makes it better, what makes it worse, uh, the chronicity, has it started 20 years ago and it's getting slowly progressive or does it wax and wane? Was there anything that was added medication-wise or taken away medication-wise or something that happened health-wise that is associated with the onset or worsening of the condition? Where is it in the body? That's an obvious one. Is it in the hands? It is, is it in the voice, the head, the legs? Is it high amplitude or low amplitude, high frequency or low frequency? And you know, they describe the three to five hertz frequency, whatever. All of these things have descriptions. I cannot look at a tremor and say that's six hertz. You know, I cannot do that. But I can tell you that's a lower frequency or a medium frequency or a higher frequency tremor. Um, <laughs> and then any other associated features. So essential tremor will. Patients may have some imbalance, for example, uh, some different parts of the body are affected in the central tremor, whereas Parkinson's disease, you're going to have lots of other associated symptoms, usually, if you have a Parkinsonian tremor. So all of those things are important when, evalu when evaluating tremor. Great. And it's a relief to hear that you don't have to describe it by the number of hertz, because I could never do that either. <laughs> and it's good to know that an expert can't do that. So I'm off the hook. You're off the hook. Um, all right. So in summary, tremors, hyperkinetic, rhythmic, oscillatory movements. Um, the big categories are divided on when you see the tremor, resting tremors associated with Parkinson's syndrome, uh, Parkinson's disease and also Parkinson's plus syndromes. Action tremors, they are kinetic tremors, postural tremors, isometric tremors. All of those are considered action tremors. And to describe tremors, we have descriptors including uh, when you see it as mentioned earlier, resting or action, but also the anatomical location, what are some of the characteristics in terms of amplitude and frequency and chronicity, and also other associated features of the tremor syndrome. So let's start off by discussing some of the action tremors, starting with the one that medical students might have already heard of, which is essential tremor. What are some of its features? So essential tremor is the classic action tremor. It generally gets worse over years or decades. If there is a very quick worsening, then that may make you think that there might be something else going on. It usually starts in the hands the, and the arms, and then it may involve, especially in, at later times, the head, the voice, and other parts of the body. And as I said, it's an action tremor. It's, it's very much involves kinetic activities, so patients will describe difficulty with writing, with eating soup, drinking from a cup, those types of activities, and may make modifications, um, like such as putting on a lid or using a straw in order to help reduce the issue with the tremor interfering with those activities. It is somewhat familial, and we don't have a gene that we can point to that says this is 
the cause of essential tremor, but it certainly does run in families. And let's see what else. Sometimes after many decades of this, patients can also develop some cerebellar dysfunction, some difficulty with tandem walk, imbalance, and intention tremor. And the way that you would bring this out would be to test the patient in all of the actions that we've talked about with postural tremor. You look for hands outstretched, hands facing towards each other, like a karate chop position, we call it, hands in towards the body in a, in a, a wing-like posture. Sometimes it'll come out more then. And then you want to test kinetic activities such as writing, pouring between cups, drinking from a cup, and drawing spirals is a wonderful way to bring out tremor. And the way that we do that is we have them put pen to paper and we tell them that they cannot anchor their forearm or their wrist or their hand on the paper. Only the pen touches the paper and they draw a spiral slowly starting from the middle and moving out and you see the tremor coming out. And essential tremor patients often have a very characteristic spiral drawing where the tremor gets worse directly across the clock from the other area of worsening so that you can draw a line from one area of worsening to the other area of worsening, say at the two o'clock and seven o'clock positions or two o'clock and eight o'clock positions right across from each other. That's where it's worse on the spiral. And that's called an axis and is very characteristic of essential tremor. Lots of pros in that one. So essential tremor, uh, an action tremor that is predominantly in the hands and forearms may progress to the voice and the head. And as it progresses, there's a family history. And as it progresses, we might see signs of cerebellar dysfunction and the key example that you just dropped over there was on the spiral test. Uh, we'll see patients that have an, an axis in, in their, in their um, uh, tremor while drawing a spiral. So now let's move on to an enhanced physiologic tremor. I think I'm having a bit one right now after I finish my afternoon coffee. So can Dr. Schaefer, can you describe what it is and what are some common causes? Yeah, so enhanced physiologic tremor is also an action tremor. Sometimes, especially in young people, it can be difficult to differentiate from ET. So in older people, ET tends to be a bit slower, a bit higher in amplitude, but in very young people, even ET can be very fast and low amplitude like enhanced physiologic tremor. And everybody has a physiologic tremor, okay? So, so what we're talking about is enhanced physiologic tremor. Everybody has a physiologic tremor. It's just that it's so mild that you can't see it. But if you didn't get sleep, if you've had four shots of espresso, if you're worried about match day, if you're public speaking in front of a big group of people, you're going to hear that tremor in your voice. You're going to see that tremor in your hands. And that's called an enhanced physiologic tremor. And one way on the examination that you can tell the difference is that in addition to it generally being faster and finer or lower frequency than essential tremor, these patients don't have any cerebellar signs. They don't have intention tremor. If you see intention tremor, so a clear worsening as you're approaching the target, not just tremor on finger to nose, because that could be kinetic tremor, right? But a clear worsening as you approach the target on finger to nose, that is not indicative of enhanced physiologic tremor. Uh, all right. So that was enhanced physiologic tremor. 
it's faster and lower amplitude than the central tremor that we mentioned before, and there is no cerebellar dysfunction associated with that. So the last category of action tremors is a, cere a cerebellar tremor. So Dr. Schaefer, what are some of the causes of this and what does it look like? So we see cerebellar tremor when there's cerebellar pathology. So anything that, that could be affecting the cerebellum can cause a cerebellar tremor, whether that's demyelinating lesions, strokes, uh, atrophy from long-term disease processes such as genetic cerebellar conditions or chronic alcohol abuse. And cerebellar tremor is characterized by this intention component, this intentional component to the tremor. So in addition to looking obviously for other evidence of cerebellar dysfunction, such as eye movement abnormalities, dysarthria, dysdyadicokinesia, which is when you're doing rapid alternating movements with a patient, such as putting your palm down and then the back of your hand and going back and forth and back and forth and seeing dysfunction in, in, in those activities. What you want to do is look for worsening of the tremor as you approach a target, as we discussed. Um, and also, gait is very important for these patients, having them not only walk normally and looking at their base, but seeing if they're able to tandem walk or stand in tandem stance. All right, cerebellar tremors, pretty straightforward, looking for cerebellar pathologies, which usually comes along with other cerebellar signs like nystagmus, uh, ataxia. Uh, especially gait ataxia, and the word that I can never pronounce, dystiad or dyskinesia. Dystiadokinesia. Yeah, You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Try to spell it now. <laughs> uh, English was not my first language. <laughs> I, I don't think that's the reason that you can't say or spell it. Nobody can. I agree. That's not, that's not the yeah. <laughs> English was my first language, and, and I can't do that either. <laughs> All right, let's continue our discussion of tremor, but now we'll move on to resting tremor as opposed to some of the action tremors that we were just talking about. Now, resting tremor is most often associated with Parkinson's disease and the other Parkinsonian syndromes. First, Dr. Schaefer, could you define Parkinsonism for us? Sure. So Parkinsonism is the symptom. Parkinson's disease is the disease. And there are lots of other things that can cause Parkinsonism other than Parkinson's disease, as we will discuss. Parkinsonism is strictly defined as bradykinesia, so a slowness of movements, plus either rigidity, so a stiffness of the body, or rest tremor. So you do not need to have either rigidity or rest tremor in order to have Parkinson's uh, Parkinsonism. You need to have one of them plus bradykinesia. Does that make sense? So bradykinesia plus either rigidity or rest tremor is the definition of Parkinsonism. Perfect. And really the most common cause of Parkinsonism then is, is Parkinson's disease. So we'll start with the tremor that you see in, in Parkinson's disease. How would you characterize that tremor? So the tremor is generally slower than essential tremor and enhanced physiological tremor in addition to being at rest. We see, we test for this often by having patients sit comfortably in their chair with their hands resting in their laps. We have them close their eyes and we have them do a cognitive task. And this helps to prevent their brain and their body from 
inhibiting that tremor. So they get re as relaxed as they can. Their brain is occupied with naming the months of the year backwards or doing serial sevens or something like that. And we're able to see the rest tremor come out. The other times that you often will see a rest tremor during the exam is during walking when the, when the arm is just hanging by the side of the patient. And also when the patient is doing tasks with their other hand, it will often bring out the rest tremor in the contralateral hand. So if they're writing or if they're doing the movements that we have them do to test for bradykinesia, you may see it in the other hand. Rest tremor in Parkinson's also can include the jaw and can include the legs as well. But most commonly what we see, especially in early Parkinson's is a hand involved. Great. So just to summarize, again, this is a resting tremor most commonly seen in the hands. And the best way to really elicit it on exam is to, to have the patient just sitting comfortably and doing something that distracts them, some kind of cognitive task, or, or even if they're, they're up and walking or, or doing a task with their other hand, it's a great way to, to be able to observe for the tremor. What are some of the other motor presentations of Parkinson's disease besides the tremor? So some patients may come in with tremor and other motor manifestations of Parkinson's, and some may come in with no tremor and other motor manifestations of Parkinson's, such as bradykinesia and rigidity. So in addition to the tremor, we look for bradykinesia. And what that means sort of generally linguistically is a slowness of movements. But what we're looking for is bradykinesia and hypokinesia. So that's a slowness, brady is slowness, hypo is smallness of movements. We're looking for a slowness and a smallness of movements. And this can manifest, as I said earlier, in just looking at the patient, looking at their facial expression as they're talking to you, looking at them get up from a chair. How much are they moving their arms when they do that? When they walk, are they swinging their arms or not? Is one arm swinging more than the other? When they just are sitting there, you would expect some amount of gesturing, how fluidly and quickly they move their body to look in different part, uh, parts of the room. All of those things are examples of looking for bradykinesia. But formally on testing, we have them do a task repeatedly, such as tapping their fingers or opening and closing their hands or tapping their toes. And what we're looking for in Parkinson's in particular is a, is a decrement over time. And what that means is that not only are they slow or are they small, but it gets worse as they go. So they may start big and wide and fast and then get slower and smaller as they go through 10 taps. And so we, we generally test each thing, 10 to, doing 10 repetitions so that we can see the decrement over time. And then in terms of rigidity, we move their arms and legs around while they're hopefully as at rest as they can be to see if there is a catch or an increase in tone. And if we don't feel it, we actually have them do um, a task with the opposite arm or the opposite leg while we're moving the limp arm or leg around. And sometimes that can bring it out 
And so those are relative amounts of rigidity. So if we feel it just when we're moving them around, then that's more rigidity. If we have to do other tasks to get it to come out, then that's less rigidity. And we do their arms and we do their legs and we do their neck. And then we obviously have them walk as well. And we look for the arm swing, as I said, the stride length. So taking small steps, walking very slowly, all of those are evidence of bradykinesia and taking lots and lots of steps to turn around is called an on-block turn. And we look for that as well. And then the last thing is postural instability, which I know is part of TRAP, right? The, the acronym for Parkinson's disease, tremor, rigidity, akinesia, and postural instability. Usually the postural instability comes quite a bit later after the diagnosis is made. If it's there right off the bat, you might think actually that they may not have Parkinson's disease, but have something else. But we always do test Parkinson's patients for postural instability by doing the pull test. And then what about some of the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease? Oh yes, there are many. So they can have cognitive complaints. And usually these are what we call subcortical patterns of cognitive complaints. So these patients, their hippocampus is fine. They can make memories. They don't have Alzheimer's disease, right? So that encoding of memories is there. But what they have is a difficulty with retrieval of those memories, retrieval of memories, retrieval of words. They may have word finding difficulties, tip of the tongue phenomena, okay? Then there's a lot of autonomic dysfunction with Parkinson's patients. So they may have some orthostatic hypotension, some urinary frequency, nocturia or retention. They may have constipation is very common, those types of things. Some patients have sweating dysfunction, excessive sweating and things like that. One really big one that's very associated with not just Parkinson's disease, but with any alpha-synucleinopathy. So that would include Lewy body disease and multiple system atrophy, all of which along with Parkinson's have alpha-synuclein deposition abnormally in the brain. So any alpha-synucleinopathy is associated with REM sleep behavior disorder, which is when patients act out their dreams at night. So instead of being totally atonic during REM sleep, which is the norm, usually you are not really able to move when you're dreaming. And that's so that you don't hurt yourself trying to fight the lion or jump out of bed. Um, these patients are not atonic. They move, they act out their dreams. They may punch or kick their bed partner. They may fall out of bed. They may find themselves waking up on the other side of the room. And if they're woken up during these periods, they will have been dreaming. And so that's very, very indicative that there's an alpha-synucleinopathy going on. And then finally, I'm sure I'm missing some because there are so many different non-motor symptoms, but um, anosmia is another one. So a decrease in the sense of smell. And all of these non-motor features can precede the diagnosis of a motor manifestation of Parkinson's disease by many years. Oh, the other one that I missed obviously is uh, psychiatric. So anxiety and depression is more common in Parkinson's patients. And you can imagine that given the number of neurotransmitters that are affected in Parkinson's disease and all of the pathways, acetylcholine and serotonin and dopamine, that they, the limbic system may be affected as well.
so a lot of different manifestations of Parkinson's disease. Uh, just to recap, you know, we talked about the resting tremor. Uh, Motor-wise, the other things you're really looking for are both bradykinesia and hypokinesia, um, and, and as well rigidity and thinking about that trap mnemonic of Parkinsonism. And then really on exam with repetitive uh, movements like finger tapping, you see that decrement over time. And then some of the non-motor symptoms can really precede the, the motor symptoms, but some common presentations include uh, subcortical like cognitive complaints, like retrieval of memories and, and, and words, uh, mood disorders, REM sleep disorders, autonomic dysfunction, and, and loss of smell. And you, you briefly alluded to uh, the alpha, uh, Parkinson being an alpha synucleinopathy. Uh, just generally, could you review some of the pathophysiology of Parkinson's disease? Sure. So pathophysiologically, Parkinson's is an alpha synucleinopathy, as I said, which means that there's abnormal aggregation of alpha synuclein protein in the brain, and that manifests as Lewy bodies. And in Parkinson's disease, that generally involves the substantia nigra, as you could imagine, affecting dopamine production in the brain. And then in later stages of disease, it can affect and involve many more areas of the brain. And in Lewy body disease and in multiple system atrophy, then different areas of the brain are more or less affected by the alpha synucleinopathy. Great. And then finally, what about diagnosis and treatment? So diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is clinical, meaning that you can make the diagnosis right then and there based on a history and a physical exam. And there are supporting things that you can use to help you with the diagnosis. The biggest one is a DAT scan, which is a dopamine transporter scan. This is something that we do not order in patients who have clear Parkinson's disease. If we are convinced that we know what's going on with the patient, we, we again make the clinical diagnosis and do not order the DAT scan. A DAT scan can be useful if you are not sure whether it's essential tremor or Parkinson's disease, or say a patient's had essential tremor for 30 years and they come in with a worse tremor and now you're noticing a rest tremor, but you're not sure if it's just overflow from the essential tremor or if it's emerging Parkinson's in that situation, a DAT scan might be useful. But if you're seeing Parkinson's, Parkinsonism on exam, a DAT scan is not helpful because actually it doesn't help differentiate any of the atypical Parkinsonisms from Parkinson's disease. And so we often don't, don't order it. And then treatment wise, you're basically most of the time trying to increase dopamine. And that involves giving them dopamine directly with Cinemet or Carbidopa levodopa. Funny little side note, Cinemet is called Cinemet because um, they used to give levodopa right at the beginning of treating Parkinson's and people threw up because levodopa makes you nauseous. Then they added Carbidopa to decrease the peripheral breakdown of levodopa and allow it to get into the brain, which eliminated the degree of nausea that these patients were getting. And so carbidopa levodopa is called cinemet without emesis. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> little side note, um, there are other ways that we increase dopamine by decreasing breakdown of dopamine in the brain, such as with 
a monoamine oxidase inhibitor or other medications and directly act, acting on dopamine receptors. And there are a few other medications that we use that have different mechanisms of action as well. And then for very refractory Parkinson's disease where medications are not cutting it or they're having too many side effects, we do consider deep brain stimulation surgery in these patients. And getting back to the pathophysiology of the basal ganglia, we target the sub, uh, subthalamic nucleus or the globus pallidus interna in these patients. And that both of those have the net results of decreasing inhibition to the system. So you're getting more activation of your motor system and tackling that bradykinesia. Great. So to summarize, the diagnosis of Parkinson's is, is usually clinical based on the features that we've already discussed, uh, although a DAT scan is a consideration if you're unsure of the diagnosis. And the treatment is really focusing on replenishing dopamine with dopaminergic medications, uh, but for refractory cases, uh, deep brain stimulation, DBS, um, is an option potentially. And at this moment, I think it's nice to touch on the atypical Parkinson disorders, which Dr. Schaefer, you actually mentioned a little bit just now. Sometimes these are also called Parkinson's plus disorders because they have features of Parkinsonism, such as a tremor, but are, but are also associated with other features. So let's briefly talk about three of these, starting with multiple systems atrophy. So what should medical students know about this disease? I think what's important to know about any of these is the extra features that you're looking out for to help you with the diagnosis of this instead of Parkinson's disease. So for MSA or multiple system atrophy, which is also a synucleinopathy, as we discussed, there's MSA-C, which is MSA cerebellar, and there's MSA-P, which is MSA Parkinsonism. But really there's quite a bit of overlap. So cerebellar features in addition to Parkinsonism should make you think about MSA and extreme autonomic dysfunction should make you think about MSA. So these people don't just have a little bit of orthostatic symptoms when they stand up, they actually have syncope. They don't just have a little bit of urinary retention, they have a Foley in place. They don't just have a little bit of constipation, they've required manual disimpactions in the past. That is the level of autonomic dysfunction that many of these patients have. And what about cortical basal syndrome? Cortical basal syndrome is very much characterized by cortical signs, language dysfunction, apraxia, so difficulty doing known tasks like figuring out how to use a fork and knife, for example. And alien limb phenomenon can be seen in cortical basal syndrome where one arm is just floating up into the air and they, they aren't really aware of it um, and able to control it. They also have more myoclonus and dystonia on the affected limb than Parkinson's patients do. And they generally also progress to more significant cognitive impairment more quickly. And lastly, progressive supranuclear palsy. So progressive supranuclear palsy is very characterized by eye movement abnormalities. 
So Parkinson's patients may have the little hypometria of their eye movements, meaning they undershoot and then have to correct, or their eye movements may be a little slow. PSP patients have very slow eye movements, and ultimately they do have restriction of gaze. So vertical gaze is more affected earlier in PSP patients. So if you get a Parkinsonism patient who comes in and has restricted up gaze and down gaze, and has very slow eye movements, you wanna be thinking about PSP. And the other thing that happens early and would make you alert to the idea that this may be PSP is profound postural instability. These patients fall, they fall backwards. When you do a pull test on them, even when they're early in their disease course, they fall on you. So those are the main features to look out for in that disorder. Excellent. So for these atypical Parkinsonism disorders, Parkinsonism, but plus other features. So for multiple systems atrophy, we're looking at cerebellar dysfunction and profound autonomic dysfunction. For cortical basal syndrome, we're looking for cortical signs and early cognitive dysfunction. And lastly, for progressive supranuclear palsy, we're looking at uh, eye movement abnormalities and postural instability. I do want to point out that for all of these, most of the things that we talked about as differentiating features are present in Parkinson's disease. But in these disorders, they happen earlier and they happen to a more extreme extent. All right. And that wraps up the first part of our episode on involuntary movements. We focused on the description of these movements and what would give us a sense of the phenomenology. And for this episode, we focus on the phenomenology of tremor. So for the next episode, we will talk about three other phenomenologies, chorea, myoclonus, dystonia, and tics. That's actually four, four other <laughs> phenomenologies, a bonus one in there for you. So stay tuned. <laughs>